This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of France in the New World, Part 1, by Francis Parkman. Chapter 3, Huguenots in Florida. In the year 1562, a cloud of black and deadly portent was thickening over France. Surely and swiftly she glided towards the abyss of the religious wars. None could pierce the future, perhaps none dared to contemplate it. The wild rage of fanaticism and hate, friend grappling with friend, brother with brother, father with son, altars profane, hearthstones made desolate, the robes of justice herself be drenched with murder. In the gloom without lay Spain, imminent and terrible. As on the hill by the field of Roe, her veteran bands of pikemen, dark masses of organized ferocity, stood biding their time while the battle surged below, and then swept downward to the slaughter. So did Spain watch and wait to trample and crush the hope of humanity. In these days of fear, the second Huguenot colony sailed for the New World. The calm, stern man who represented and led the Protestantism of France felt to his utmost heart the peril of the time. He would fain build up a city of refuge for the persecuted sect. Yet, Gaspard du Colonier, too high in power and rank to be openly assailed, was forced to act with caution. He must act, too, in the name of the crown, and in virtue of his office of Admiral of France. A nobleman and a soldier, for the Admiral of France was no seaman, he shared the ideas and habits of his class nor is there reason to believe him to have been in advance of his time in a knowledge of the principles of successful colonization. His scheme promised a military colony, not a free commonwealth. The Huguenot party was already a political as well as a religious party. At its foundation lay the religious element, represented by Geneva, the martyrs, and the devoted fugitives who sang the psalms of Miro among rocks and caverns. Joined to these were numbers on whom the faith sat lightly, whose hope was in commotion and change. Of the latter, in great part, was the Huguenot noblesse, from Condé, who aspired to the crown, to the younger son of the impoverished seigneur, whose patrimony was his sword. More than this, the restless, the factious, and the discontented began to link their fortunes to a party whose triumph would involve confiscation of the wealth of the only rich class in France. An element of the Great Revolution was already mingling in the strife of the religions. America was still a land of wonder. The ancient spell still hung unbroken over the wild, vast world of mystery beyond the sea, a land of romance, adventure, and gold. Fifty-eight years later, the Puritans landed on the sands of Massachusetts Bay. The illusion was gone the ignis fatuous of adventure, the dream of wealth. The rugged wilderness offered only a stern and hard-won independence. In their own hearts, and not in the promptings of a great leader or the patronage of an equivocal government, their enterprise found its birth and its achievement. They were of the boldest and most earnest of their sect. There were such among the French disciples of Calvin, but no Mayflower ever sailed from a port of France. Coligny's colonists were of a different stamp, and widely different was their fate. An excellent seaman and staunch Protestant, Jean Ribot of Dieppe, commanded the expedition. Under him, besides sailors, 
were a band of veteran soldiers and a few young nobles. Embarked in two of those antiquated craft whose high poops and tub-like proportions are preserved in the old engravings of debris, they sailed from Harve on the 18th of February, 1562. They crossed the Atlantic, and on the 30th of April, in the latitude of 29.5 degrees, saw the long, low line where the wilderness of waves met the wilderness of woods. It was the coast of Florida. They soon descried a jutting point, which they called French Cape, perhaps one of the headlands of the Matanzas Inlet. They turned their prows northward, coasting the fringes of that waste of verdure, which rolled in shadowy undulation far to the unknown west. On the next morning, the 1st of May, they found themselves off the mouth of a great river. Riding at anchor on a sunny sea, they lowered their boats, crossed the bar that obstructed the entrance, and floated on a basin of deep sheltered water. Boiling and roaring, says Rabot, through the multitude of all kind of fish. Indians were running along the bank, and out upon the sandbars beckoning them to land. They pushed their boats ashore and disembarked, sailors, soldiers, and eager young nobles. Corselet and Morion, Arquebus and Halberd, flashed in the sun that flickered through innumerable leaves, as, kneeling on the ground, they gave thanks to God, who had guided their voyage, to an issue full of promise. The Indians, seated gravely under the neighboring trees, looked on in silent respect, thinking that they worshipped the sun. Quote, they be all naked and of a goodly stature, mighty and as well shapen in proportion of body as any people in your world. And the forepart of their body and arms be painted a pretty work of azure, red, and black so well and so properly as the best painter of Europe could not amend it. With their squaws and children, they presently drew near, and strewing the earth with laurel boughs, sat down among the Frenchmen. The visitors were much pleased with them, and Rabot gave the chief, whom he calls the king, a robe of blue cloth, worked in yellow with the regal fleur-de-lis. But Rabot and his followers just escaped from the dull prison of their ships, were intent on admiring the wild scenes around them. Never had they known a fairer mayday. The quaint old narrative is exuberant with the delight. The tranquil air, the warm sun, woods fresh with young verdure, meadows bright with flowers, the palm, the cypress, the pine, the magnolia, the grazing deer, herons, curlews, bitterns, woodcock and unknown waterfowl that waded in the ripples of the beach, cedars bearded from crown to root with long gray moss, huge oaks smothering in the folds of enormous grapevines, such were the objects that greeted them in their roamings, till their new discovered land seemed, quote, the fairest, fruitfulest, and pleasantest of all the world, close quote. They found a tree covered with caterpillars, and hereupon the ancient black letter says, quote, Also there be silkworms in Marilius number, a great deal fairer and better than our silkworms. To be short, it is a thing unspeakable to consider the things that be seen there, and shall be found more and more in this incomparable land. Close quote. 
Above all, it was plain to their excited fancy that the country was rich in gold and silver, turquoises and pearls. One of these last, quote, as great as an acorn at ye least, close quote, hung from the neck of an Indian who stood near their boats as they re-embarked. They gathered, too, from the signs of their savage visitors that the wonderful land of Cibola, with its seven cities and its untold riches, was distant but twenty days' journey by water. In truth, it was two thousand miles westward, and its wealth a fable. They named the river the River of May. It is now the St. John's. And on the next morning, says Ribot, we return to land again, accompanied with the captains, gentlemen, and soldiers, and others of our small troop, carrying with us a pillar or column of hard stone, our king's arms graved therein, to plant and set the same in the entry of the port. And being come thither, we espied on the south side of the river a place very fit for that purpose, upon a little hill compassed with cypress, bay, palms, and other trees, with sweet-smelling and pleasant shrubs. Here they set the column, and then, again embarking, held their course northward, happy in that benign decree which locks from mortal eyes the secrets of the future. Next they anchored near Fernandina, and to a neighboring river, probably the St. Mary's, gave the name of the Seine. Here, as morning broke on the fresh, moist meadows hung with mists, and on broad reaches of inland waters, which seemed like lakes, they were tempted to land again, and soon, quote, espied an innumerable number of footsteps of great hearts and hinds of a wonderful greatness, the steps being all fresh and new, and it seemed that the people do nourish them like tame cattle. Close quote. By two or three weeks of exploration, they seemed to have gained a clear idea of this rich, semi-aquatic region. Rabot describes it as, quote, a country full of havens, rivers, and lands, of such fruitfulness as cannot with tongue be expressed, close quote. Slowly moving northward, they named each river or inlet supposed to be a river after some stream of France, the Loire, the Charente, the Garonne, and the Charente. At length, opening betwixt flat and sandy shores, they saw a commodious haven, and named it Port Royal. On the 27th of May, they crossed the bar where the warships of DuPont crossed 300 years later, past Hilton Head, and held their course along the peaceful bosom of Broad River. On the left they saw a stream which they named Le Bourne, probably Skull Creek. On the right a wide river, probably the Beaufort. When they landed, all was solitude. The frightened Indians had fled, but they lured them back with knives, beads, and looking-glasses, and enticed two of them on board their ships. Here, by feeding, clothing, and caressing them, they tried